Podcast, the podcast about movies and the stories that inspired them. I am your host, Caleb. Uh, with me, as always, uh, just back from a trip to the grocery store to pick up some cans of curry brand cat food, uh, my co-host, Frank Meyer. Frank, how are you? Worse, because if you knew me better, you would know I'm not a cat person at all. I, I much prefer dogs. I, I wouldn't be caught dead buying cat food for my cat or someone else's. Um, are you a cat person, Caleb? You know, uh, in currently in talks to acquire to acquire a cat. I was not one growing up, but the they have grown on me, the little bastards. And uh, who are you? Are yeah, you in talks with good. a? Are you in talks with a specific cat or a, or a cat dealership? It is uh, sort of in talks with the universe about sort of the concept. But no, I, I I think it's in the cards that a cat will be entering my life. I just don't know which one or when. But uh, it will happen eventually. I should let me let me introduce our guest, and then I'll talk about the time, the closest I've gotten to buying a cat. Um, our guest today, we've got a terrific guest. They are a local filmmaker and artist here, a local-ish filmmaker and artist here in Minneapolis, and one of the hosts of the terrific Under the Influence Pod. This is Zant Peralta. Zant, so much. Uh, Zant, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That is a hell of an introduction. <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, so, the, so the closest I've gotten to buying a cat is there was a, a cat cafe in Kalamazoo where I used to live, and I had a friend who volunteered there, and I was sort of prepping a routine where I was going to try to buy a cat, but drop hints that I was planning to, like, cook it or serve it as a dish. So I'd be like, so, like, you know, got a crowd of this many, like, one cat enough for all of that, any kind of preparation you recommend, or what sort of recipes, and I was going to try to escalate until I got to the register, and... um there, there goes all of our listeners dipping out immediately after hearing <laughs> a joke about eating cat. Um, all right, so Zant, you're you're our guest here for the second episode in our Los Angeles noir miniseries that we're doing. Uh, I sent you this list of films, and you pretty immediately got back that it was it was it was this one, The Long Goodbye, by Robert Altman that you wanted to mm-hmm. do. So, what what about it hopped out to you? Honestly, it was just the name. It sounded interesting at the time. I actually knew I like you sent me the list and I didn't really want to do a ton of investigation at the time because I'm a person when somebody sends me something that has like a deadline and it's uh more so a friend than like a work kind of thing, I will like feel pressure to respond right away. So that was like my gut choice and funnily enough it was like the fact that it was Robert Altman was like one of those things where it's like it felt like it was meant to be too, because I recently just like uh, purchased Shortcuts and seen that for the first time, and nice. then um, had also just been getting into Altman because I just wanted to um, know more about like PTA's um, Paul Thomas Anderson's um, kind of influences and seeing like uh, what his um, flavor and style in the seventies and eighties brought to people like the Safties, Paul Thomas Anderson, and a bunch of other modern filmmakers, because I knew uh, they all look up to him, but I had really never seen um, any work outside of um, recently Shortcuts, and then I was gonna, I can't remember if I'd seen this other one by him, but uh, then The Long Goodbye came along, and that was kind of uh, like a happy coincidence. Hell yeah. Mm -hmm. So would you... Would you describe, I mean, we'll get into your thoughts on this movie specifically, but generally would you describe yourself as an Altman head or just someone who is 
Are you alt right? Like Are you alt right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, just as a as a brown person, I am alt right. No, but uh, uh, no, I don't. I don't know yet. Uh, I think shortcuts is one of those uh, perfect amalgamations of all of alt trip altman's like intri- uh his idiosyncrasies and kind of like the stuff he loves about film, really packed <laughs> into one film. Oh, the other film I did watch was The Player. Which I did like. Love the player. I did like the player. I didn't love love the player. I was like that. I think that was the first one I'd watched before Shortcuts. I liked the player. I was like, this is cool. This is awesome. It's a little meta and a little old, but it's still very cool and very interesting. And I think the fact that Altman really pioneered this idea of people talk in real life and people talk a lot in real life and interrupt each other. And the fact that he really loved showing that throughout film and also loved the idea of having long takes with the zoom lens and um, basically showing the whole environment to make it feel as real as it could be, like it was actually happening in front of your eyes, was something that I really admire and really admire, and especially in modern day filmmakers, like people who also cite him as like the Safdie brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson, who I really look up to. So I think... Seeing those strokes of influence was something for me where I was like, oh, I see where they get it from. I see where this is now coming from. And I love learning that in film history, especially just because I think it just makes you more informed on it. But I'm also trying to not be uh, as gatekeepy as that either, because it's like sometimes you just like what you like. And it's like you don't need a general historical reason as to why you enjoy that style. But I think that for me is a, a big one. Word hell yeah! How about how about noir as a genre for you, Zan? Is that is that a favorite genre of yours? Is it something you ever tried to create stuff in that vein of, or definitely in the past, it was stuff. It was something that I had as a like a a screenplay writer. It was something that I kind of had dabbled in. I think the closest thing that had like ever came to fruition at one point was like. A short film sort of uh, revolving around um, a, a similar uh, process, like a similar kind of, um, I don't know what the word is, a similar summary to like what uh, The Long Goodbye and most noirs are as a PI is investigating a case and that kind of thing. And I think that came from, um, at the time um, when I was writing it, was like from seeing Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was a real big movie that had an impact on me because it was a funny noir, yeah. but it was also very modern at the time. And it was also just like so, so just like goofy and silly. And same with the nice guys. Shane Black is really great at that subvert style to kind of just like really uphold the I, comedy. But uh, I, I laugh so hard in the in the Kiss Kiss Bang Bang when he calls him Captain Fucking Magic at the end of that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I think Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and the Nice Guys are almost the same movie. I think the only difference is just the decades they haven't and I think Shane Black really loves uh noirs and I think he, that's probably what he's best at. Um outside of maybe like writing older predators <laughs> but um because yeah. it's like the new predator that he made was okay in my opinion a lot of people do like it but uh, i i wasn't really vibing with it i think we can the official stance on shane black's the predator from three years ago is that is a piece of talk shit mm-hmm. um 
very much some people though that i know absolutely like praise it for like kind of going back to those old like 70s roots uh, and feeling very sincere in that it's like not trying to overreach what it's trying to be because i mean when you think about the predator movies as a whole it's arnold schwarzenegger essentially a big like 80s movie star and essentially and uh and a big long goodbye star i know and i saw yeah. that at the end of the film and i was yeah. like oh my oh my god this is so he's got the stash. wild oh. he's just like, and he's just so quiet i'm like wait it's just like it's just like do you not realize who it's like you're around it's just like uh, it, was, <laughs> it, was just, it was just so funny to just see him playing like just like a very extra just minor role in like a, a big yeah, Hollywood just a film. goon yeah but yeah i, I love how about you frank are you Oh, sorry, go for it. Well, I, I I love how quick he pulls off his shirt in that scene. Yeah. Everyone else is like kind of – but like Arnold Schwarzenegger is so proud of his bod and it feels like in a movie when like the understudy gets their chance to perform on Broadway that night. Like he is so conscious of getting his fucking body on camera mm-hmm. as quick as possible to show off. He's I like he's like this is how I'll get another role. I feel like that. Yeah. I feel like cuz I feel like it's like I don't yeah, it's get not to, the dialogue. I, yeah, I don't get to talk. I don't get to really do too much in this film. But if people see that like I'm in shape and hot, I could potentially be like another like uh body double or something or like another uh, another tough guy. Another heavy. He probably heavy. also I bet his English is still like not great at that point in his career yeah. cuz even on Conan, he's still getting kind of coached, I think, on like how to pronounce a lot of stuff. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger, come on the pod. We, we look. <laughs> oh, <laughs> honestly, those were some of the first R-rated movies I ever used to watch growing up. It was like Terminator, Total Recall. Um, what's that James Cameron one um, with Jamie Lee Curtis? True, True Lies. Lies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, I mean, just all the big Arnold ones, but my dad was just in love with it, and those were the only movies that, like, we used to watch together, and he's like, hey, don't tell your mom. You, you know those kind of movies where it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, like yeah. it's like it's just you and your dad just, like, kind of sitting back and, like, watching them. And, all, like, my family was never, like, movie people. They were they liked to watch movies, just, you know, just movies that, like, came out Jurassic Park, sure. whatever was in theaters, that kind of stuff, but, like... There was the occasion where my dad and me would get to enjoy something a little bit more meaty. And even if my dad would be like, I don't really get Terminator, but I still like it because of Arnold. And I was like, that is such a, like, even especially now, I'm like, that's such a weird dichotomy to, like, just have with a film. It's like, I don't really get it at all, but, you know, Arnold. And I'm like, I'm just like, what? so, so wait a minute. Should we hop into the book? I'll try to keep it kind of brief. I have sort of, there's kind of two big ideas I think that I want to get across here kind of about this book and, and Zant jump in, jump in anytime you want mm-hmm. with yeah, thoughts on it. Definitely. Um, so the long goodbye is one of the later Philip Marlowe novels. Um, we spent, you know, last week's episode on the, on the big sleep. That is a pretty classic, I would say detective noir story. Most of the major emotional beats in it are, are greed and betrayal and investigation um, and sort of a vague sense of kind of justice and sex appeal as well going around in it. And I think, I think the long goodbye is kind of distinct and interesting because Marlowe is sort of testing out whether genre, whether the genre of noir and, and mystery as kind of a, as a narrative vehicle is a good way to convey a sense of, of grief. Um, really the, the heart of the book is, Marlowe develops this friendship with a guy who dies in kind of mysterious circumstances, and 
he's trying to solve this mystery, but for the most part, it's really just about grieving and kind of trying to understand and get a sense of his friend. Um, that it's the sort of titular long goodbye in question is kind of going through these stages of, of grief about it. Um, so I think that's something that makes it distinct um, in the canon. And the other, I would say, sort of interesting aspect of it is that uh, Marlowe writes it after he has moved into La Jolla, which has kind of became a wealthy beachside writer's community at that time in Los Angeles history. And so very much kind of the place that Roger Wade lives in, in, in this movie. And so I think that Chandler is kind of split his personality and his life story into kind of three characters in the book. Terry Lennox, who is sort of the mysterious dead man in the beginning part of it, who is kind of of both the United States and of England, as Raymond Chandler was. Philip Marlowe, who I think has always been a little bit of a surrogate for Chandler to fit in his kind of jabs or critiques of, of the United States and of Los Angeles. And then finally, Roger Wade, the alcoholic author, um, played by Sterling Hayden in this movie, um, who, um, like, like Chandler, has a real kind of up-and-down relationship with alcohol and suffers kind of deeply from alcoholism. Um, Chandler dies not that many years after the long goodbye, um, after he contracts pneumonia on basically a really bad bender and, and dies in a hospital. Um, and so I think that it's, yeah, I think it's, um, I think what's kind of interesting about that La Jolla chapter in his life is that a lot of artists and creatives live there, but not because it's necessarily a really raw or fertile creative space, but more because it's just like a landing zone or kind of like a sign that you've made it in certain ways. Mm -hmm. It's not like, it's not like Berlin was for Bowie in the eighties or kind of like Harlem during the Harlem Renaissance. Or like Paris in the twenties or something. Yeah, exactly. It's not really a, um, that's even probably a better example than either of those. It's not, you don't go there to find creativity. You go there because you've made it and want to buy like a nice beachside. This is where creativity at its highest, like esteem has landed you. Yeah. And it's and and successful create like like marketable creativity I think mm-hmm. yeah so so I think that is another aspect of this book and 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 I think the movie upholds it like pretty well is this like juggling Chandler's legacy and him sense of his his own sense of self and how he splits it into these three characters should we hop into into pre pro yeah before before we uh, talk about sort of the pre production of, of this movie specifically I because I think this movie has so much to do with the dawning of sort of a new era in Los Angeles and in Hollywood. I kind of want to talk about the rise of new Hollywood um, in the mid to late 60s. This would be like hippie Hollywood, correct? This is when like Easy Rider's coming out, things like... Yeah, yeah, that's... So I... This is going to be a huge, huge, huge oversimplification of this process, which took decades and, you know, none of these rules were hard and fast. But generally the way to look at this process was that in the uh, in the 30s and 40s, which is considered the, the sort of golden age of Hollywood, uh, creative power rested primarily uh, among the studios. And they enforced that power um, in, in two main ways. One was the, the personal services contracts by which they uh, bound artists and actors and directors to them and these sort of linked those artists and actors and directors exclusively to a single studio and sometimes they were loaned around again there's always exceptions but that was sort of 
one way that they maintained control. And the other was uh, the system of, of packaging in which they would uh, sell bundles of movies to movie theaters based on... Uh, so they would go to a movie theater and they say, so you want to screen Casablanca? Of course you do. This is going to be a huge mega hit. But in order to buy the rights to screen Casablanca, you must also buy sort of our sort of below market trash. Um, and so you must... If, wow. If you want to screen Casablanca, you have to screen sort of everything on Slate. This system, uh, which again kept artists sort of under contract among single studios, a romantic way of looking at this, which is it allowed performers and filmmakers and studios to develop deep professional connections and relationships and allowed them to explore those connections and relationships and, and the ways that those relationships evolved over time. And so you, in this period, you have a lot of very fruitful relationships between directors and stars, like say John Huston and Humphrey Bogart, uh, John Ford and John Wayne, um, sort of these, these connections that define cinema. But it also stifled the creative growth of a lot of artists because studios didn't feel terribly compelled to invest uh, very much money or effort into exploring new ideas or genres or or archetypes of any kind, because most of the movies that they were making were just going to be packaged and sold alongside sort of the bolder, bigger movies. Yeah, Frank, you want to jump in? And I also think a weakness of it or is that um, these kind of different performers and artists don't get to select projects as much or kind of shepherd a thing into it. Um, I love the scene in... Um, in uh, Hail Caesar by the Coen brothers when uh, Josh Brolin is negotiating contracts over the phone. And that's how you end up having uh, Alden, Alden Eric, who's fucking terrific as a little cowboy kid having yeah. a star in, as in Lorenz Lorenz's latest film, you know, which is like Lorenz Lorenz. It's like a, it's like a satire of that, but I think mm -hmm. is kind of genuine of like, it's a project. No, like if both, if both of those artists got to choose who they were working with, they would never select each other. But they have to, and that's kind of that's a little bit of how movies are getting put together at the time. Yeah. Okay. So that so that is the foundation of old Hollywood, and in the uh, late forties and fifties, that system starts to crumble. Um, uh, there were a series of of, of lawsuits. Um, the two big ones were De Havilland v. Warner Brothers, in which Olivia De Havilland um, won her lawsuit against Warner Brothers that allowed her to take her con to shop herself around to other studios. Uh, and the b real big one is United States versus Paramount Pictures, which broke the packaging system uh, as anti-competitive. So uh, studios had to start uh, marketing uh, their films individually. So over the course of the next couple of decades, you have a new generation of younger filmmakers um, who are more interested in, again, oversimplification, French, Italian, and Japanese movies than sort of classical Hollywood stuff. And they also have the newfound legal authority to force... I'm sorry, that that sounds so much just like a, a, like a suburban mom when you come back home from college and Thanksgiving telling you about like the new restaurants. Like, I love this new French, Italian, Japanese restaurants we've got on the highway. But it was really like that, though, because, I mean, French, French New Wave was coming out, and that was a big influence on a lot of 70s filmmakers. Like, I mean, from Malik to people who were just coming up with just like, I mean, Scorsese as well, mm -hmm. De Palma. You have all sure. these new filmmakers that are just seeing these films like Kurosawa and stuff that are just absorbing Tarkovsky to a, to a certain extent as well. 
that are just absorbing all this new stuff that is coming out of uh, France during that time with like Jean-Luc Degas, Jacques Detat, stuff like that. And it's just a different way of filmmaking because filmmaking over there was never about money to a certain extent. It was more about creative expression. And so when you have stuff with, I, I don't know if I'm getting like dates right for certain films, but like when you have stuff like 400 Blows or like uh, Bicycle Thieves and mm-hmm, for sure. a few other things. And now that is finally being distributed to the United States outside of like American filmmaking, which was like mostly Westerns at the time going out and in into the, the new Hollywood. It's so interesting to see the way things progressed. I mean, even with like camera movement and just like. The way we're moving away from such a formulaic and almost such a still and stagnant way of filmmaking, almost play-like, where it's like you're propping the camera here, we're going to shoot this for a little bit, and then we might get coverage over here for it. Otherwise, we might just move on to the next scene. And that's how like TV movies and movies that were shown in theaters were shown for a long time. And that's why they used to also record plays for TV, because... There wasn't much of a difference at the time, and especially even in the acting styles, there weren't even much of a distinct difference. Yeah, and if, again, it should be said there are there are always exceptions. There were sort of classical auteurs in the golden age of Hollywood period, but they were more of the exception than than there. They were sort of few and far far between. But so, as I sort of said, you have younger filmmakers who are sort of entrenched in other ways of making movies, who then also have the legal authority to make. Uh, the film studios compete with each other to get those young filmmakers to make those movies. And so the result is that you had a period in in the late 60s. Huh, I guess the free market isn't so bad after all. Yeah, sometimes. You both just fucking grimace so hard. <laughs> like, Zed left frames so he like, just like or something. I mean, even even within the studio system, it's just so gross, like, what people got to make and why they got to make it the way they uh, did. Yes. I don't know. It's just, I've, 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 I've been watching, like, a lot of older Scorsese stuff as of recent, uh, I, just because, it, weirdly enough, as, as much of a, like, a film bro kind of, like, influence that is, um, I was never, like, actively super into Scorsese as a filmmaker. Like, I liked his films. Break but my heart. I, I've never seen Goodfellas. I'll say that. I just I'll watched Goodfellas, that. like, a I'm, month is it, this is month. It, is it good? Yes. I did not like it. Okay. <laughs> I did not like Goodfellas. I was like, I was like I've seen this film, like, in his, his, in his filmography in better ways. And I'm like, The Wolf of Wall Street is better than Goodfellas. And even Mean Streets is way better than Goodfellas. I, I mean think Streets is better than good. That's films. a hot take that I disagree with, but I do also love Mean Streets and The Wolf of Wall Street. I want to jump back to a thing that that you said earlier about sort of this period, and it's you say it's it's gross that these specific these this new wave of directors coming up, it's gross that these were the people who were allowed to make these films, and I think that's a very astute thing to say because I think the story of New Hollywood and the American New Wave of filmmaking is yes, it is a sort of creatively revolutionary period where incredible films are making and incredible filmmakers get their start. Mm-hmm. Um, and f- for for the viewers, this is Stanley Kubrick who had worked under the old studio system in the past, but this is when he makes 2001 and sort of becomes Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick. Or at least um, leading into that in 68, where it's like we're starting to see the real effect on Hollywood. I always like 
credit this era of the big shift to the 70s and i will only say that i know that because i saw once upon a time in hollywood and i i, I absolutely loved that movie but um it's it's that real big shift where you're starting to see like people are uh hedge funding these micro budget films and they're actually being able to get made in a system where it's not just about who wants to see movies anymore. It's about how you can make money. And that's not necessarily a good sure. thing, but that's but that's what was happening at the time. And then it, when moving into the 80s, it's like you get stuff like Evil Dead funded by a bunch of people just asking and banging on doors. And then you also get stuff by the Coen brothers, like Simply Simple Blood or whatever that movie's called. That's I didn't really simple, like yeah. it, but yeah, I didn't really like their first feature. I feel like that's an unpopular opinion too, but that is, I, that's I, very I, did, I, I really didn't enjoy their first feature. I was like, <laughs> this is kind of boring and stupid, but that's just my opinion. But you get all this like creativity coming out of the 70s and moving into the 80s, but the 70s was really about uh, creative freedom and really making it about the artist versus overall creating the product, which is such an interesting change in the dynamic in Hollywood when you're so locked into contracts with a certain studio and you have to do certain movies for them at a certain time. Yes, but I, I think we all agree that this is, this is a good and creative fertile time, but I I think we mm-hmm. should also talk a little bit about the dark side of this kind of shift in power is that it also, um, I think this period is also rife with uh, filmmakers who are uh, known to be uh, bad guys, uh, very abusive. Mm-hmm. This is yeah. um, Kubrick is famously awful on set. Uh, Terrence Malick routinely fights with his actors and is roundly hated. Uh, Sam Peckinpah, the same way woody allen so what's wrong with woody allen (laughs) (laughs) yeah what's uh, the controversy on woody allen could you uh, tell me again caleb (laughs) and in contrast to this and and we're gonna of course talk to him uh also among this wave of filmmakers is our boy robert altman who we're gonna discuss more in theory and an actor's best friend exactly who is who is widely beloved but also in the midst of all of this sort of the old hollywood did not just die and i just i kind of want to talk a little bit not a little bit i want to talk about lee brackett who we've brought up before uh she co-wrote uh the big sleep in 1944 uh the uh or co-wrote with uh william faulkner the howard hawks she's so fucking cool she's so fucking cool anyway but i hate william faulkner but continue we can't fight about every Caleb point, so I'm just going to move on. <laughs> a terrible man. But Lee Brackett co-wrote The Big Sleep, in nineteen, which the film comes out in 1946. She worked in Hollywood a little bit and then left Hollywood to write science fiction novels. Uh, to Only to return to Hollywood in 1959 to write Rio Bravo, again for Howard Hawks. And so she spent the 60s sort of as this creative revolution is happening in Hollywood, she is at the center of it, writing movies almost exclusively for Howard Hawks, who is absolutely a relic of the old system uh, of Hollywood. But in 1972, uh, her old literary agent, who has since become a a film producer, uh, kind of bought the rights to this movie on a lark just because, you know, he had a relationship 
with this woman who wrote a, a previous uh, adaptation. Uh, and so he hired her to come on. Uh, I've read that maybe Hawks was also approached. That wasn't, I, I couldn't confirm that. Um, but maybe. What a fun counterfactual to I have know. him like revisit the property like 30 years later. But uh, I, ultimately glad it didn't happen. But but the, the last thing that I, I kind of want to say before we jump into this movie is that I think her take on this this film, I think, is a reflection on individual, personal, and artistic liberation, but a reflection of the cost that it comes, or the cost that it bore, to interpersonal and collective responsibility. Um, I think that is something that we're going to talk about as we talk about this movie. Do you think, and this is just a question I'm posing kind of based off what you said, do you think that um, the consequences of the 70s are affecting the 20, uh, 20s um, that we're now in? In the sense of filmmakers can widely and usually to a large extent get films produced um, at some level at least. But do you think the consequence of that is the fact that we're so pro-artist versus like pro whatever entity wants to produce these films and since we're so pro artists there has become a large amount of content out in the world or do you think that's just due to the fact that content can be distributed in such a way now i actually i i don't i think sort of power has shifted entirely away from the artist again i think we are sort of back in a studio forward model of power in hollywood right now um where I mean, yeah, you, you look- well, especially with streaming, like I mean, look, like you know, I'm I I am working at an independent video store right now. It's I think I I think it is the last video rental place in Minnesota still running. Um, is that Family Video? And no, Family Video went under in December. I rented a movie from them, and I was like, this is so fun again. And then I believe I rented The Art of Self Defense, and then. I had to go take a bus to return it. It was like a 45-minute bus trip. But which family video did you go to? It was like a 45-minute bus trip, so I couldn't even tell you what video it was. I just like Googled it. I was like, I want this movie. I want to see it now. <laughs> I'm gonna... Zane, you got you to gotta come out to come out, come out and see me at Video Universe. It's independent and has like it has a way better selection than Family Video did. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize I was doing an unpaid advertisement for my <laughs> employer. Um, I know. I mean, like we're running into this like so firsthand, Caleb, with like – Greyhound, you can rent it for like $20 on a platform for streaming. And if you want to be up to date on movies, that's what you're going to do. And we're not going to get it for months because there's this weird. It's so weird that we're in that era. Well, and and like COVID has like horribly exacerbated it, you Mm -hmm. know? I mean. Where they won't even print out DVDs or like screeners or whatever you would like to call it in time to just have for people to rent. You have to charge people $20, which is like. Maybe, like, due to, like, inflation and, like, other things and way the way VOD sort of services go. Because, like, you know. It's a bad not, value. Yeah. Not every studio has, like, uh, a platform that they can just mass distribute things on. It's going to cost well, some money. And and now they're all kind of trying to egg in on it. Like, um, you know, like, Arrow Video, which is just sort of, like, Grindhouse <laughs> Criterion, basically. I'm sorry, Caleb. It's, like, 38 minutes in and we haven't even talked about this movie you love so much. But. 
like Arrow Video is going to launch its own streaming service, which at that point is like, for fuck's sakes, you know, like well, Paramount nothing Plus, is going to be common. It's like it's all coming to like exactly what people were worried about, where it's like it's just going to be just as expensive as cable. There's just no overlay network now that uh, can supersede anything. And it's like it's weird because like things like Hulu and things like uh, H, not HBO Max necessarily, but things that are generally not owned by a certain service provider or like a, a certain production company, I should say, are going to just, you know, fall to the wayside because it's like once those rights that they expire and at once a certain streaming service gets established enough, they're not going to need a, a, a third party service like Hulu. So it's just going to go away. And the only con- Which I think is. Yeah. And- well, I think it's paradoxical what is going to kind of reopen the conversation about like antitrust and streaming, mm-hmm. which I feel like we all like legally we're not in, in a position yet. Like you can't really say that anyone is being denied access to movies based on uh, based on like the distribution or kind of creation model, because tech like theoretically you can just buy a subscription to every single fucking streamer on the planet. But if Netflix is never going to put its stuff like if the only way to watch The Irishman is to right now buy the Criterion <laughs> edition for yeah. 60 fucking dollars yeah, true, true, or true. pay Netflix a monthly fee to have access to it are, we're sort of we're sort of rooted or kind of stuck in like the in the in the idea of, of of cinema as like a physical landscape and like a physical thing you interact with to is what all these laws are tethered to which like I never want to lose that space but oh, so yeah. many people are cons- and that's, you know I, I like, think that's the scary yeah. part of it too that you might lose that space too and I'm so scared of losing I feel like cinemas. that was the big fear with Blu-ray too even um when it was coming onto the scene and HD if you remember as well um yeah. HD video but it was just so scary to the fact that like all these things might just become like laser discs, just useless pieces of uh yeah uh, data just not being able to be read by any system and we're almost even i i'm afraid of at least recently that we're getting into an era where certain uh like not necessarily like dvd players but certain like gaming systems that i use to play dvds are going to get to a point where it's like we only do 4k and blu-ray now where it's like that is a reality that we are slowly encroaching on because the market is becoming so slim to what is actually being purchased fuck we gotta talk about this movie no let's get into I, it I, let's just, I love let's, just, about let's just slowly move into it then let's just i feel like a great way to describe this film for people who don't know altman and people who may not be like associated with like older films or anything in general would be like a great way to describe it it's like inherent vicey it's very very it reminds me of why Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to like adapt Inherent Vice in the sense of just there's just so much like pulpiness to it, but there's also just this huge backbone to this movie that makes it feel so real and just so based in what seventies Los Angeles or wherever it is set in. At yeah. least it was made in seventies. But it just feels like it's exuding all of that character that was in that. Well at I'm probably at the time. No, I'm going to I'm going to probably bring this up again. Hey listeners, Frank here. I am about to say something that is false on this episode. Inherent Vice the book came out after The Big Lebowski, but I think the works are still thematically connected, so I decided to keep my next tangent in here. Enjoy the rest of the episode. No, I'm going to I'm going to probably bring this so up we again. Are, we're doing Inherent Vice at the that's our last episode of this mini series and we we're 
I think that there's this trajectory that goes from this movie to Inherent Vice, the novel. Mm-hmm. I think then, I, I think The Big Lebowski actually is very inspired by like the structure of the mystery in Inherent Vice and that kind of repurposing mm-hmm. of noir conventions into this question of like counterculture and like a sort of this kind of Reagan era consensus and just like a dying sense of like of 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 weirdo America and then and then I think PTA's beautiful incredible fucking inherent vice movie is the is the is the accumulation of like all of those threads you know like it's it's sort of the apex of the form until we get whatever the great American A24 neo noir is going to be we'll see we'll see <laughs> we'll see about that <laughs> I I feel like Hot Summer Nights is like something that A twenty four was like. This is the next like whatever whatever. Caleb, tell us about Robert Altman, the Mensch. The you're, he said he's the great friend of actors. How does he get on board with this project? I think I'm sorry, we've totally hijacked pre pro, but I do want to hear the conclusion here. Um, no, that's essentially uh, the finished Lee Bracket script was was shopped around Hollywood. Uh, for a while, there there were no real bites, um, just because I think most people thought that this property was sort of dead and old Hollywood and sort of uh, and 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 uh, empty. Um, but Robert Altman read Lee Brackett's script, uh, and specifically he read the ending and was, uh, which is a major departure from Marlowe yeah. as a character. Uh, and he agreed to sign on to the movie so long as the ending remained intact. Should we give a little primer for Robert Altman and, and his just general style of filmmaking? Is this pre-MASH or is this before MASH? I think MASH is 75, but is that, that yeah. is a good question. Oh, no, this MASH is, is 1970. This is post-MASH. I fucking love MASH. Robert Altman's... Uh, general style we've alluded to it before it's uh you you talked about sort of overlapping dialogue and the way that that is sort of reflection of life and i think that is that's very true yes it is like it's very realist and it is the way that people talk and 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 all that but i think it is it is also the way that he sort of depicts community is not sort of uh sort of stilted conversation where it's sort of call and response it is people talking over each other and yeah. processing as they're talking. And it is through that overlap that you see the sort of the relationships and the different levels of relationships among not just two people or three people, but among six people and six communities and how they're all stacked on top of each other. So it's a very sort of busy soundscape. You will often hear not just two conversations going on at one time but also in sort of the this the background of the sound design you'll hear you know a couple at two tables mm-hmm. down in the restaurant yeah. having conversation it is just it is a i say cacophonous but it's it's not i actually find it very comforting it is he is yeah it is the way that he sonically creates mm-hmm. a world that is what robert altman brings and also he is beloved by his performers mm-hmm. they love him I mean, because he gives them a lot of freedom to ad lib and uh, and uh, find scenes and characters themselves through these conversations mm-hmm. and these relationships. 
All right, should we should we hop into the film? Let's do it. All right, so we begin with Philip Marlowe is a detective sitting in his sweet-ass pad, and his cat wakes him up because he needs cat food. This pad is dope. I love this kind of non, this very unassuming beginning to the movie. Um, as he's running out to get cat food, we get the sort of first tastes of the Long Goodbye song that's going to repeat in so many different contexts in this movie, and we see his friend Terry Lennox on the way. Um I don't know. It's 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 sort of hangdog and brief in that it's only maybe like like eight minutes long and there isn't a whole lot that happens in it. But like strong feelings we have about this opening. Yes, I I I can't, I want to talk about opening on Elliot Gould, who is so fucking hot in this movie. Yeah. It just needs to be said. Uh, asleep, and Altman has described this take on Marlowe is as Rip Van Marlowe, uh, <laughs> which is a reference to Rip Van Winkle, the sort of the legendary, uh, the, the folk tale about a guy who fell in under, fell asleep under a tree and awoke 20 years later. And I think this story is very much Philip Marlowe falling asleep in 1946 and waking up 20, uh, waking up 25 years later in 1973 sure. in Los Angeles and then sort of having to navigate the world. But I think this is the first this is the first clue that our Marlowe is not a man of his time. He is a man of another time. He is very much the same Philip Marlowe from the Chandler novels. The world has been updated around him, but he is the same. I agree. Well, and it's and I think Elliot Gould, I think, connects to that part of the character in an interesting way. So the car that Marlowe drives, which is kind of an old, like <laughs> classic car that feels kind of out of place in the cities. Uh, in 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 Los Angeles, that's that is Elliot Gould's car of the that's his personal car. Like he brought his own car oh, to really? set. Yeah, Whoa. yeah. I found a there's <laughs> a fun interview I was watching with um, uh, put together by the Santa Monica Libraries that has Elliot Gould talking to the author of the Bosch novels. Um, who did the Lincoln Lawyer? If we ever want to talk about Matthew McConaughey on this podcast, mm-hmm. Caleb. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe we don't. <laughs> Actually, we should do we should do Sahara if we really wanted to talk for our Clive Cussler mini series. We should do uh, you know it's a good McConaughey that kind of gets like under uh, appreciated a lot. I feel like Killer Joe is a very underappreciated film. Oh, I we actually should do Killer Joe. I fucking love mm-hmm. Killer Joe. Word, maybe the best Tracy Letts movie. Definitely, um, maybe the best Tracy Letts adaptation. I would say yes. Yeah. Yeah, Bug just, is a really did... good adaptation, though I will say. Yeah, so I think uh, Mar- Marlowe is this guy out of time, and I think it's a cool. Well, I think you're right, Caleb. It's like how do you graft on a 1940s novel and make it, or 1951 novel and make it work in 1972? But I think Allman like totally pulls it off here by having. There's something kind of unflappable about Marlowe, but also pretty like chummy. I don't know, but like. We talked a lot about how Humphrey Bogart interprets that character and sort of the maybe the deficiencies in that. How do you feel about Elliot Gould as a I, like I love this version of Marlowe, but do you think it's still like an accurate reading of Marlowe from the books? Yeah, I think this is this is the reading of sort of this this character as a loser and this character if he had been transported to 1973 would be seen as a fucking loser. Um, he's <laughs> sort of... He's a he's a square 
Um, you know, he has no no interest in art or culture or anything, really. He only cares about, you know, his work and two people in his life. He's, uh... Yeah, I think I think this is a a I think this is a brilliant performance uh, uh, by Elliot Gould. I especially we talked about sort of the Altman soundscape, but the way they sort of interpret the constant sort of Chandler uh, sort of one-liners yeah. and jokes that sort of pepper Marlowe's internal monologue and just has Elliot Gould mutter them under his breath as he's walking away from being freshly humiliated in a new way. Um, I think it's it's a brilliant interpretation of the novel that also feels true to what, again, what that character would be in a new Well, setting. and I think that, like, the it's sort of, these encounter the way these encounters read, because Marlowe is a very, like, um, I mean, I, this movie nails it that he's, like, he's just, like, he's very sarcastic and kind of makes, like, sort of japes mm-hmm. about almost everyone he interacts with. And I think the this movie does it well in that, you get why he's like appealing and fun. I mean, we'll get into it when he's at the police station, but the fact that he still is kind of able to win over the cops, even as he's like, even as he is basically just kind of saying fuck you <laughs> to all of them so much. Yeah. And in the, and in the big sleep and with Bogart doing this character, just because Bogart is such a masculine icon, it reads, I think a lot more as he kind of bullies people into going along with like the ways he makes fun of them. But I love Elliot Gould, the idea that, even if he is insulting you, there is something so fundamentally likable about how he's doing it that, like, it's okay, basically. And that's how those that's how those kind of exchanges read in the book. Well, I think the character, at least the way I saw it on screen and, like, the 20 pages that I did read, I thought it was so interesting to me that Elliot Gould kind of embodies this, like, I don't know. I don't know if I disagree with what you said, Caleb, where he feels like a loser, but he feels like just like the coolest guy you knew in high school, in a way, where it's just... He's yeah, both at the same time. It's just like somebody who was truly just being like, ah, I guess this is what it is. It's very like Spike Spiegel and kind of like Cowboy Bebop, where mm. it kind of just feels like... Um, a person that was really just vibing with like the what the universe is giving them. And they do have things that they hold close to them, and there are, like, greater things that um, are something... And I think that's something that the ending of the film especially shows really well. Um, like, true character traits and true truths, and, like, almost, like, uh, bonds that they will not break, no matter what. But I think, like, the most interesting thing about Elliot Gould's thing was the fact that, like... Every moment he was on screen, and I know him generally from like Ocean's Eleven, that trilogy, and Steven Soderbergh and all that, which I'm sure Steven Soderbergh loved this movie. But correct, yeah. It's just that it's just that thing of just like Elliot Gould being like too cool to handle, and he's just got this one suit on, and it just feels like that old PI kind of like motif, but it also just feels like. It's so relevant and cool. And if this guy showed up on my doorstep and started talking to me, yeah, we'd, we'd probably vibe because he's just along for the ride. Yeah. Um, I'll get into talking about his scene with Terry Lennox unless there's anything about the grocery store or anything we want to talk about here. I think it reminds me a lot of Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. Um, down to the suit, even. I think like it reminds Hell me yeah. a lot of Barry, the way Barry Egan is dressed um, in that movie. Um, and it's weird because I know... Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson is an Altman superstan, 
but especially when I like saw that grocery store and then I see Punch Drunk Love, I'm like, I cannot not compare the two because they seem almost like similarly identical, especially even the way Punch Drunk Love is made where uh, Barry is wearing that suit the entire film. Yeah. And we have a character in this film that also wears that entire suit the other film. So I can almost not correlate the two to each other but i i think i think i loved that the way this film was seen staged and like uh filmed in this and i love the way altman just kind of he he loves like a dolly and he loves like a a, a move in kind of shot but he also loves the zoom which is something that is mm-hmm. so interesting to me where it's like concentrating on like an actor's emotion it's not just concentrating on like what is happening you brought up the suit and i actually i think that's uh we should we should talk about his suit a little bit because um like like in punch trunk love he is very uh very attached to his black suit uh to the point where he risks yeah. grievous bodily injury <laughs> yeah. rather than take it off um at any point and refuse to and there's a when he gets arrested later in the film and, and uh, gets his his hand inked and he refuses to wipe it off on his shirt because that's um but it, it also is the thing that marks him as different. And I think this is, when you say he's sort of along for the ride, I think that is mostly true in the way that he interacts with people. But in the way that he presents himself to the world, he is actively presenting himself as not of their world. This is, he is not of the 70s. He's going to wear his black suit. He's going to drive his jalopy. Uh, and he's going to work as a private eye. And that's going to mark him as different. I've got a drop from from Elliot Gould describing this character from this interview I mentioned earlier. This is Elliot Gould describing his interpretation of Marlowe. Bob said to me, "You're you're the problem in the picture. Nobody else has a conscience. You're you're uh, everybody is doing what comes natural, and you are the one who you know who, who makes the story because you're conscious." And you have a conscience. And who else uh, in, in the picture has a conscience? I, I believe in law and order. I believe in uh, administ- administrative, administrative organization. Whether I like government or not, we need government. And, and you have a, uh, a, an old samurai who has somebody with a value system that is really so precious. It's so... Uh, it's it's very you know this is what uh, Chandler wrote when you say the seventies it's the present it's now that picture was now whether it's the seventies and I'm in the seventies now in life or whether it's the eighties or whenever no matter what our age I love that image of of Marlowe as a samurai with a code because he's such a in this movie, he has so little aggression. He's like, he almost has no violence, but I, that extreme sense of devotion. I don't know. The other kind of great American samurai on film is like Ghost Dog, uh, who Jim I think is Jarvis. also similarly like a really weird kind of hang dog dude. We could swing Ghost Dog as an adaptation of the Bushido book, right, Caleb? Uh, Maybe not. I mean, look, stre- we've, <laughs> we've, we've, we've stretched farther. As the, I would say the next big scene is... Uh, and we'll kind of move faster as we go here, but I do love his his convo with Terry Lennox before he drives him down to Mexico. This like weird betting game they play with a dollar bill, just because it, uh, 
we're recording this the week that our Constant Gardener episode is coming out, and that movie is all about like one last interaction that you have to read a lot into with saying goodbye to someone. And I like this as a goodbye of... It feels... It, it has a lot of color and personality to it, but it's kind of inconsequential, but also sets up this dynamic of there is a degree of distance between the two men and that this gambling exercise is all about kind of bluffing and lying to each other. So there is... Fun- fundamentally, like, their relationship is grounded in, like, being able to guess each other's dishonesty. I have one note on this. So uh, the, the actor who plays Terry Lennox is a is a guy named Jim Booten, who is not a professional actor. He was a baseball player. Um, it, he was most famous... Uh, he was sort of around the major leagues for a long time, but is most famous for writing a book called Ball Four about his time with the Yankees. And this was a... It came out... This would just just would have been a few years before in the early seventies, um, about the culture of baseball players and sort of the hard drinking, hard partying, uh, hard drug abuse, and specifically about sort of the Yankees heroes of the fifties and sixties, and he's kind of singularly responsible for destroying the myth of baseball. And I think cool. this is a really interesting casting choice by uh by Robert Altman to like bring the ghost of dashed dreams into this movie. Caleb, good on you for finding a way to tie baseball into this conversation. Uh, <laughs> Baseball's good, you should watch it. We've got a uh, Ellie Gould drives into Mexico and the next morning the cops are at his pad trying to pick him up. Um I lo- I could watch Elliot Gould argue with cops yeah. almost like every day of my <laughs> life, you know? Like he's I love this stretch in well, the police crazy. station. Um, yeah, it's crazy how much charisma. The way and he's like, like riffing. Not that he doesn't have it in Oceans, but it's crazy how much charisma and just like watchability Elliot Gould exudes out of this movie specifically. I mean, I feel like without Elliot Gould, this movie doesn't work in a lot of ways. Like, I can't think of another actor at the time. Not at all. I, Ma- I mean, like, obviously you could make the comparisons to like Chinatown with like Jack Nicholson, where it's like. That same level of charisma, same level of character, same level of, like, other things. But Elliot Gould is just cool. He's smoking. He's just, like, the Marlboro Man. He's just, like, coming at you. And he's just, like, you know, I don't know. It's just, like, so effortless. It doesn't feel like it's being, like... Jack Nicholson, especially in Chinatown, sometimes feels like it's, like, I'm... It's, like, it's hardened a little bit or it's a little bit forced. But Elliot Gould's, like, ow. What are we doing? It's like, it's just like very effortless kind of like, he's improving it all the way. Yeah, I, I think the, the key to Elliot Gould is kind of, a, you, you compare him to Jack Nicholson, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting. Yeah. Nicholson oozes menace in Chinatown. He's cool, but in the way that a jock is cool and sort of mm-hmm. magnetic, but also physically dangerous. Um, where Elliot Gould is cool in the way that mm-hmm. the stoner kid who gets shoved into lockers is cool. Uh, in which he is just kind of floaty and harmless and unharmable, or at least outwardly so. Um, perhaps there is some darkness within him that comes out. But no, I agree. He's Gould is magnificent. It's a great like a cab sequence too. I love of just I don't know I <laughs> I 
on the one hand, I think it's always distressing to learn that like the problems of our own time have been a problem for for decades, if not centuries, and that we still seem to have learned nothing. But there's also, I think, something very comforting about an outdated ass, you know, I, a movie from 1972, supposedly the the before the cutoff year of when movies are watchable, <laughs> yeah. according to that dumbass Twitter fight that I really shouldn't bring up again. But I love seeing in 1972, like, riffing on possession as a as a cheap thing to bring people into prison for, and, like, mm-hmm. just that cops are oh, just yeah. fucking dishonest dicks, you know? It's... It's good. And it, you know what? It's true to the novel. Like, the novel is, like, pretty... Like, Marlowe spends this stretch basically just being, like, fuck you to cops and talking about how he thinks they're just, like, dumb shitheads who are bad at their jobs. So, I love that... I hate that cops have been terrible since at least the 1940s, if not way earlier or time memorial. I love that people... That the American public has still been able to catch on to that fact and that artists have documented it, though. I would, I would say, yeah, the... The one other important element that comes out of this police station sequence is we watch Marlowe dealing with counterculture. So you, you talk about his cellmate who is picked up on possession, but he also has this moment where he um, uh, sees the the uh, stock shelver from the grocery store uh, who's been arrested for beating up a cop, and he gets along beautifully with both of them um, and seems to have genuine rapport and connection. And I think this is important because Gould, who has marked himself out as not a member of the counterculture, sort of a product of the 50s, but is not specifically not a reactionary and is not authoritarian in any way. Not only does he not like cops because they inconvenience him. So when when we say that Marlowe is a product of the 50s, that doesn't mean that he's sort of mean and vicious. Uh, it just means that he sort of holds certain values that have been... Uh, uh, de-emphasized. No. Marlo would never vote for Trump. Never. No way. Marlo wouldn't vote, probably. Marlo would not vote because I feel like the non-caring element is there, but also just like the extreme opinions of both would just like outweigh what he actually feels. He gets busted out of prison and is kind of immediately called and requested to... Well, again, he finds out that Terry Lennox is dead. I should, I'm sorry. I, I also think it's followed by another PI, right? More to talk about in jail. I, I don't think so. Oh, God. No. That's a journalist that picks him up, I think. Yeah. And I feel like that scene is mostly just a kind of, like, exposition, mostly. I think it's well done and, like, and like compelling in the movie, but I think it's sort of like, by the way, your friend Terry died, like... I, I guess, guess he, he died. I guess he committed suicide. Like, uh, yeah, it's the classic. Um, whenever you're in a detective movie, and the and the just dipshit that rolls in and is like, I suspect no foul play. One of the great tropes. Well, it's the cliche before cliches start happening. Yeah, but you know, this podcast is. Uh, maybe people will say that about us one day. But um, the uh, uh, the joke was, that was a weak ass joke. Um, I feel like it's interesting to see that Altman is a lot like Hitchcock. Um, Say more. I feel like in the sense of like, um, especially with the way Altman films stuff, it reminds me a lot of like the limited amount of Hitchcock that I've seen, but Altman seems very tied to that old um, classic style of filmmaking, but it feels very new and fresh, um, especially in this film, I would say, because it's like, Altman is do- doing and being tied in with like themes that are very similar to Vertigo, 
but instead of staging it in a way of like we have two people talking in a room and we're going to cut back and forth between a lot of things we have two people in a room and we're going to use a zoom anamorphic lens and just fixate on certain people at certain times which is really interesting because i think like using zoom lenses originally used to take people out of movies and that's why people didn't used to do them and now i feel like it fixates on a specific part or a specific emotion that a filmmakers want to evoke in a person that uh really brings it out and especially in this film i mean it happens throughout the entire film where we see it where it's either we're cutting through a bunch of different stuff or we're zooming in on a bunch of different stuff or in a long one one take which i think is really interesting but it does kind of remind me of hitchcock in that way of it feels very um formal it feels very um restrained still even with the steady and kind of uh dolly-like movements it still feels very it's here but it's formal Gould gets hired Marlowe gets hired to kind of babysit this alcoholic writer Roger Wade and sort of save him from this clinic this clinic felt like a very inherent vice location to me and reminded me I think of kind of I think I feel like there's a pretty direct inspiration to Martin Short's character in that I feel like yeah it's almost hard to ignore especially the way Paul Thomas Anderson made the film Inherent Vice versus, like, the book. Because I know Thomas Minchin is, like, a hard author to read and get through anyway. I've never read anything by him, but I've just heard that. And I feel like... Big recommends on Inher- the Inherent Vice book rules, and I think is, is pretty readable, I, uh, on the, like, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. I would say. And I feel like if you ignore the correlation between these two movies, I don't know. Especially the way the one filmmaker feels about another. It's like... You honestly, like, I don't, like, it, that would be, like, such a hard correlation to miss. Especially, like, the way Inherent Vice is structured around Joaquin's character, where it seems, even though Joaquin's character is a little bit more rigid in their morality, and it seems a little bit more loosey-goosey than Marlowe, um, like, a more updated, like, 70s version of what Marlowe's character is supposed to be. Um, sure. It seems like the films are almost like l- not identical in plot, but just so close in plot that it- it's amazing that Thomas Pynchon wrote a movie. I uh, wrote a book, a whole book, uh, basically about the same uh, book that the, the other author wrote as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Roger Wade is played by Sterling Hayden. This this performance is awesome. Sterling Hayden is like the coolest fucking G ever. He. Got brought in front of the HUAC committee because he joined the Communist Party in fifties Hollywood. He was uh he was in World War Two and paratrooped into Greece and like linked up with communist partisans in Greece fighting the Nazis and that's like where he got radicalized, which I think is awesome. Um and I love that he kinda got like blacklisted and his career got fucked with a lot because of that, but I love that he gets this kind of brief second life and gets to just be just a cool ass dude in this movie. And and he also was like a writer. He like wrote this memoir that's kind of really celebrated as like one of the better kind of Hollywood memoirs. So I think it's cool that Altman kind of saw that he was mostly an actor but had like splashes of the author within. Him. Also, just pop in for a second. Some of the best drunk acting in film that I have ever actually seen. That seems like the most realistic. I mean, obviously, like drunk acting is such a hard thing to do. But honestly, some of the most real drunk acting that I've ever seen. Yeah. I 
completely agree. I think, especially in sort of in his later scenes where he is uh, really unraveling, uh, it's it's genuinely harrowing and a film that mostly is a, a pretty delightful watch um, becomes a little bit frightening just because Sterling Hayden is such a large man yeah. and uh, is angry and is so convincing uh, as a dangerous drunk. But that is also because he was drunk on set and all of his uh, dialogue uh, is ad-libbed. Um, uh, he was uh, soused uh, the whole time, was, which really? makes me a little bit concerned. Yes. Yes, this is not drunk acting. This is just Robert Altman giving a a drunk Sterling Hayden notes. Mm-hmm. So uh, a lot of his, <laughs> his so big jokes, though. like calling Marlowe the Marlboro Man and sort of forgetting characters' names, that is because Sterling Hayden is, is that, shit-faced. So is that a Robert Altman name. like prompt? You like come to set drunk or drink on set? Or is that... Uh, just the way the actor is, and Robert Altman is trying to work within that. I'm assuming there was a conversation about this, and again, Altman is is very moved mm-hmm. by realism. So I, I'm, I, I don't, I believe Sterling Hayden would be fired if he just showed you up. You never know. Old Hollywood is weird. Uh, Shit faced. <laughs> it's very. It is true. Um, you think, so I'm going to do assume you think that, the guy in the body cast just is actually injured like that that's not an act like altman just found like a fucking cripple or found an actor that was willing to cripple himself on screen i think yeah 100 percent, yes Definitely. no but, but yes sterling hayden is i think is pretty magnificent that's... in this film I love his bottle of Aquavit that is contained inside a block of ice. Like, I, I want every beverage I consume to come Just that cold. way now. Just exactly how you would like it. I I think mm-hmm. the most interesting thing for me about Sterling and what Robert Allman seems to, like, love to focus on is the inconsistencies in the character. I think it's so interesting. Like, uh, the last scene we see this character in... Um, spoiler alert but uh the last scene that we see this character in is like them coming to terms of what they like may have done or what at least um is propelling them towards their inevitable end it's so interesting because it's exactly how like somebody who is intoxicated or somebody who is um inebriated in a certain way or is at least having those tendencies in their life at at a regular pace it would react in those situations and it's i don't know it's some of the most convincing acting in that regard to me and the most real because i feel like every scene he's in uh altman wants to zoom in on him but he doesn't and he, the reason he doesn't yeah. is because the performance is so large as a whole. You need to see how people are reacting to it as well, outside of just like zooming in on the emotionality and the charisma and even just some of the rage that is behind the eyes. You want to see how people are actively reacting to it, especially like in the context of this film in the seventies, but even more so now. I I also I love his arguments with. Nina Van Palant, who plays his wife here. I think that this is really good marital arguments on screen. It's not, it's never played super big. There is kind of an underlying tone of like a threat. 
I don't know. It feels like a really good depiction of domestic strife that is sort of pre-domestic violence almost, you know, like there Mm -hmm. is like, it's not people, it's not super, it's not this sort of weird detached, like everyone's going to yell and break things, but never touch each other. You know, it's a little more contained than that, but still there's like a palpable sense of like potential violence. I think something can pop off at any minute or something has popped off when somebody else like Marlo is not there. Yeah. I think I think that is key to because we we see Nina Patton's face uh, when we're first introduced to her, and she has been knocked around. And I think this subtext is very much that he is someone who can contain his rage and his drinking in public only for so long. But once once those doors are closed and the public is no longer looking, then the violence is there. It's just not. Uh, he does not show it, and nor will Altman. Yeah, it's not a super graphic movie, but I do, I do think its relationship to violence is 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 something I love about it. I I don't know, Caleb. I'm blowing past a lot of storyline quickly here, but I wanted to talk about the. No, I think that's fine. When um when uh the fucking evil gambler's name. Who the hell is that? That's uh Marty Augustine. Those are some of the best scenes too. I would have to say. <laughs> I love. I love this is guy this is played by Mark Rydell. Um I love these threatening scenes between him and Marlowe. Like and I think it illustrates um I think a real talent that Altman has and it's definitely as this guy who is so good at, at building relationships and using his actors and deploying them well is he's able to make a pivot within a scene not in like in a totally diegetic way like when Marlo's getting threatened in his apartment by Marty Augustine and the woman enters the room that has come upstairs, the elevator through the car. The music doesn't change. The camera doesn't do anything fancy, really like nothing in the filmmaking aspect of it changes, but it's just this new ingredient that just sort of pivots the whole dynamic of that scene. You kind of realize how much you've been brought in with the performances going on there. Um, Then he busts a Coke bottle in her face and it's just horrible. You know, it's, it's gruesome. Yeah, well, it's just such an extreme kind of change to a certain extent. And it, what it reminds me of is, like, uh, obviously Altman is, like, pre-David Lynch in this sense. But, like, it reminds me of stuff like in Blue Velvet when we get those extreme scenes with, like, Frank. And we get those extreme... Because, like, Blue Velvet, to a certain extent, is, like, a new noir coated with, like, a little bit more of, like, a romantic element to it. Like, sure. a dark romantic element. And then when we get to the introduction of like the frank character which this character it seems like a mix of almost like a martin scorsese character hyped up on coke a little bit to a certain extent and then also like a david lynch in the surreal aspect of like david lynch's frank is still in the realm of like criminal in the underbelly of society that is just like trying to get that money but is also like on a different level is just on a different like plane comparatively tomorrow he's like take off your clothes like even in the ending thing which i thought was so like funny and i think is so telling of a character he's like what do you mean you're not going to take off your clothes in front of me you're not going to be honest you're not going to yeah. be honest and it's like that's so weird that the coinciding idea with honesty is just like being completely nude in front of somebody and naked um well and how whack is it as a scene where like Everyone except your protagonist is naked, and your protagonist is the one under threat somehow, mm-hmm. you know? Like, uh, 
which makes Marlo so much more cool in that scene. Because he's like, nah, I'm not yeah. going to take off my clothes. Like, you, it's, it's like... Just, you, all three of us hate being naked. Only losers You're not going to cut me. I'm not going to take off my clothes. I know what's happening. I know what's coming. Which is, like, that kind of omnipresent, like, narrative throughout, like, Marlo's whole identity. Or at least, like, what he assumes is going to, like, be the outcome to a lot of things. I, I want to talk, a- ask you about depiction of organized crime in uh, in the novel. Okay. Um, so is, is this supposed to be sort of a Mickey Cohen guy? Because uh, the way he's, this is, in the film, this is a very 70s yeah. criminal. He pays tennis and, you know, uh, he sends his wife to expensive retreats. Um, and And in a way, it strikes me very much as, as not so much criminal as just just a capitalist businessman who also has a couple of goons, um, and he even says he you know lives across the street from Dick Nixon. Yeah, um, he doesn't feel like a criminal so much as just the way that criminality has seeped into. The, I think that's uh, California. I think that is really astute. Um, the. Yes, because this character exists in the novel. I think it's a different name. He's, I think it is Rodriguez. Like, so they, like, Altman changes, like, the ethnicity of this character. Um, and there's a real sense of, I think, similar to the big sleep. It's, it's actually quite similar to the big sleep relationship between the colonel and, uh, Tom Mannix. Is that the name of the gambler? Or Tom Marston? Tom, Eddie Mars. Eddie Mars. Final answer. Yeah, Eddie Mars the game like this idea and it was very true when Chandler is writing about LA but the difference between old wealth and new wealth and especially like sleazy new wealth that is made off of gambling that's made off of relationships with organized crime or with the movie industry or with sex trade in some way and I think this gambler is very much supposed to be a counterpoint to the other rich character in this novel which is not even in this film of this kind of old patrician character that is old money so it's a it's a good way to bring it, the text up to speed with the era is to have him be less of just a flat out criminal and more of a just like douchebag business neighbor, you know, like he's he is plausible as someone's neighbor the way that I think a lot of these criminals in like a 1940s movie are kind of implausible as anything but an organized crime goon. Talk about the guard. Yeah, the guard. I love this guy. Yeah. His impressions are good. He does these impressions of old Hollywood (laughs) stars. We see him do Barbara Stanwyck and Walter Brennan and and Cary Grant. Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. It's it's good. I I think this is a a kind of an interesting doubling of Marlowe's interaction with a counterculture. Um, where in the same way he sees a kindred spirit in them while not fully identifying. He also sees a kindred spirit with this guy while also not fully identifying with him. Uh, Because this guy, much like Marlo, is kind of a weird loser from the past who is also cool and good at his job. Um, I mean, his job is to press a button to let people... I mean, I would love to be a parking attendant. I think that actually is a really (laughs) good fit for my skill set no i agree like it's um i think a kind of unspoken 
part of this movie is its relationship to past Hollywood mm-hmm. and to and like even though you know it's never it's like the mystery isn't him on a movie set like he doesn't have to Roger Wade is a novelist not a director or actor or anything but it's all in kind of existing in this in the in the wreckage of of golden age Hollywood or of classical yeah it's not Hollywood. Tim Robbins like navigating himself throughout the players like environment but it feels very much like that same LA just earlier in the sense mm-hmm. of just like you see Elliot Gould just going through the motions of being like okay I'm talking to new Hollywood I'm talking to rich money I'm talking to old money I'm talking to like whoever I need to talk to to do this I'm talking to doctors I'm talking to the police and it's just it feels very much in that same vein of what Altman really likes to do of multi-character uh, larger than uh, just one kind of person's life. I I also think a, a great magic trick of this movie is how sometimes you seem pretty nestled into uh, Philip Marlowe's POV and kind of reacting alongside him to things. But occasionally he Altman lets him get just a little farther away from the camera or kind of lost in a bigger ensemble and Philip Marlowe stops being less of a guy you identify with and more of like a weirdo on the fucking subway. Like when, uh, it's totally jumping back, but like when he runs, when he walks away from the doctor's office and is like, those crazy ladies couldn't help me. Crazy ladies. Whoa, that's all right with me. And you're like, like, I'm pretty sure I just gave this guy $2 on the highway on my way here or something, you know? I think, I think like the funniest part of this movie is the fact that he, I think at the end of the day, if, he really got nothing out of this case if he never solved who like murdered his friend i think at the end of the day he might not care and that's like the most interesting part yes. of it because he keeps investigating and when he spoiler when he does find out like what happened at the end of the trail that is why he's so disappointed i think it's more so having mm. to do with terry not cluing him in to like what happened versus like the way it happened and maybe like because i think i think i actually sorry i think marlo also like goes through the emotionality of like being like i saw the photos and there is that too at the end but i think the greater thing is the betrayal i uh actually completely disagree with your reading marlo as someone who doesn't really care if he solves the case or not i mean he certainly he puts out that front and he and he's constantly saying to any whatever again this is someone who is constantly ignored and belittled and humiliated by everyone around him and he always just says hey it's okay with me (laughs) um but i i think that is that is fully a front for him and i think the ending of the film reveals that he cares deeply about everything that goes around him and feels all of these betrayals and humiliations and takes them very personally, but uh, because it's it's trying to sort of maintain uh, a level of zen and a level of, of numbness, and so is sort of reassure, constantly having to reassure himself that these things that are very much not okay mm-hmm. with him uh, are in fact mm-hmm. uh, okay with him. Um, I read that 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 line reading as uh, sort of an affirmation of just how much uh, mm-hmm. he is affected by all of these things that he sees. Mm-hmm. 
I always thought, like, at least from what I saw, it seemed like the action he took it was because... I don't know. I guess I read it as, like, something as if a friend were to make me the the clown in an endeavor. Like, the person... You're describing uh, what Caleb is to me on this podcast. <laughs> like, the person on the hook <laughs> for whatever my friend chose to do. And then my friend didn't choose to inform me of that. I feel like that was the reaction at the end of uh, A Long Goodbye for me. If only because it's just like... It felt like at first throughout the movie, it felt like he wanted to like justify and figure out why for himself why Terry wanted was killed and like why um and why in a lot of ways like he just wanted that conclusory evidence for himself to like you know basically ratify himself from any guilt but also just like ratify himself from like how like his friend actually did die and then at the end it feels like um to me at least the way that Altman presented it in the film um that it's like now, oh, so I'm the schmuck, so it's like I'm the I'm the idiot, and it's like when Terry says you were always born a loser. To me, at least in the film, that isn't always reinforced by the ideas of the way Marlowe is presented to me, because it's like I don't know. It goes back to that idea that I said before, where it, it felt like this is the coolest guy you knew in high school. Um, not necessarily meaning that high school is the coolest place to be or high school is the greatest, like, status to achieve. But there is some still level of, I don't know, purpose or prestige or self-esteem tied with that. And at the end, it felt like that rug is pulled from under him. And it felt like it was like, you know what? I figured this might be it. I didn't want to believe that was what this was going to be. But now that I've confirmed it, I know what I have to do. I actually think a more let's let's just let's just mm. jump ahead. I mean, the mystery is is that Terry has faked his own death. He has killed his own wife, uh, and he has left uh, Marlowe on the hook to get himself mm. out of it. But in this final confrontation, um. Marlowe is confronting Terry and sort of voicing all of all of these things. And I think the more cutting thing that Terry says to Marlowe is so when he lays out the whole plot and you left me on the hook for this or, or you used me to do to do this in this way. And Terry says, hey, that's what friends Oof. are for. And I think that yeah. is actually what what Marlowe finds so offensive because Marlowe in both in both uh, Chandler's novels and in this film believes very earnestly in the importance of loyalty and straightforward, honest dealings. Uh, and this is, this is why he respects the people that he respects. And it's why he doesn't respect the cops. And it's why he has kind of an ambivalent relationship to his neighbors because they don't see him as fully human and just more of as, as mm -hmm. vehicles. Uh, as, as a vehicle to to get them stuff, um, I think Marlowe probably sees truth when when Terry says you were a born loser, 
because he he is he he's not doing well in life he doesn't make any money he doesn't have a lot of friends uh and i like him he but he's a, a bit of a loser though it's it's really, like, it's really i will good. never yeah. live in a place as fucking cool as where he does in this like it we should maybe talk yeah. about interiors later. i feel I, like even the cat in the movie is so important to a lot of things An- another profound betrayal when he realizes his cat who he treasures and even sings to uh does not f- does not reciprocate that yeah. in any way at all um you know he's such a loser he lost mm-hmm. his cat um i think that that is the cutting thing about him is is realizing the world uh does not reciprocate any of his mm-hmm. values specifically those of interpersonal loyalty which again i want to remind us that this is written by someone lee brackett who stayed loyal to the same director for 40 years or Hell 30 yeah. years so I think this is very much Lee Brackett through Marlowe sort of interrogating this era of artistic empowerment and reading it as a way for egotistical artists to leave their friends in the dust. Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. That's a really that good is my reading. reading. Yeah, that is my yeah. reading of Marlowe end of, yeah. of this movie. And would that relationship that Lee has, was that with Altman? With Howard Hawks. Howard Hawks, okay. Who she worked with f- until 1970. That's such an interesting like read on things and like changes a lot of the context of the film, which it it probably is exactly that way that you just explained. I th- it's wild that I we are we're we're two movies in on on Chandler and Lauren Bacall was in the last one and somehow Lee Brackett is my biggest crush. <laughs> like Lauren Bacall is the second biggest crush I've had of this series. Like Lee Lee Brackett is so fucking cool. She co-wrote she she helped write Empire Strikes Back as well, Zant later on mm. in her career. Like classic Hollywood goes and makes all these cool sci-fi novels, comes back and makes this movie, does Empire Strikes Back, gets like a Hugo award in in memoriam in or whatever. Memoriam, yep. Um which like a category that they had to invent for her, I think I was looking up. That's so uh, cool. Caleb, you mentioned you mentioned interiors, Caleb. Yeah. I think the interiors so, in this whole movie are so Californian in the seventies. I think it's so like especially like Marlo's apartment, but even more so just like even when we go to I don't remember the person's name, but the the drug, uh, the person that's basically shaking Marlo down for the money that Terry owes him, is just so California in the seventies, and it just reminds me just like of so much of a different era. And I think the set design on this movie is just so immaculate, and just even the way it's lit, I would even though like I feel like Robert Altman doesn't put the cinematographer first, it feels like the cinematographer is so much like catered for lighting wise and just this is a, this yeah. is a great shot yeah. movie though and i think the way that it uses like mirrors and windows and the camera like i love the police interrogation seeing marlo through the the two-way mirror and then coming into that room or the incredible they it's a it's a motif they do twice at roger wade's house when marlo is on the beach looking at the ocean kicking waves while we see uh, sterling hayden and nita van pallant fighting upstairs and his reflection blending in and out of their fight as it's going on and then the reverse and then 
And then the fucking suicide when we watch Roger yeah, Wade drown it's so himself. Good. It's just it's so good because yeah. it's quiet and you don't hear anything. You're just watching images at a certain point, which I think is so much more powerful, especially in film where we're in a medium that is all about images. You're just watching images directed by Robert Altman, 1971. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have more? Like, should we talk about Mexico? Anything? I've got a game show I want to bust out here I at will some say, point. I will but, say uh, Mexico is a little bit of a departure, if only because of the sound design and the way it's edited into the way they shot whatever they shot. And I feel like that has to maybe something to do with, like, Mexican um, permits at the time when they were shooting. Because it felt like what they were, were recording and what ended up in the film didn't match what they were shooting. And you can kind of tell that with like certain films where it's like... You, well, it's yeah, super heavy yeah, voiceover. You can, can kind of tell where it's like, okay, it doesn't feel like they're talking about the same thing that they're talking about in the car for like multiple reasons. Uh, being like, we can't really see into the car. It's just a wide shot of the car moving around and it looks like they're talking. But also just like kind of the way it was designed it didn't really sound like they were in a car it's kind of just sounded like they were in a studio booth like maybe replaying the lines and i won't say it was like an out of place scene in like the movie but it felt like very like oh okay i guess this is where we're going now i'm not like mad about it but like i guess this is where we're going i don't know it that that's what it felt like yeah. for me that's what how i read it how about you caleb uh, and thoughts about Mexico? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I did notice the same thing. It, it does shift very heavily, uh, to, uh, um, uh, to voiceover and, and clearly dubbed audio. Uh, I also have to say, it's a great bit when the long goodbye is played by the marching band. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Do, do, do we want to talk about this song or just say that it's a funny bit whenever oh, it comes on? Oh, for sure. I mean, it's. Johnny Mercer and John Williams, which, you know, it sounds like a little silly to say out loud, but I don't think John Williams gets quite the love he deserves as a composer. <laughs> we we should like, say John Williams people, doesn't, like, everyone doesn't can get the right, like, acclaim for, like, what he actually deserves. Like, I feel like Star Wars yeah, overshadowed he's, everything. Yeah, no, Star Wars and Harry Potter and Jaws, everyone's just like, John Williams has made really simple melodies that are super iconic that you can whistle to out of a popcorn movie. But he also does like really intricate orchestration and like all the like the new Disney Star Wars trilogy movies I'm not that big of a fan of have incredible music that John Williams put together for them that is like recycling a lot of old motifs from his work and a lot of like new stuff that he's putting together in it. Like he's a he's a I, I think an incredibly sophisticated composer um and everyone just knows him for fucking Indiana Jones or whatever, which is like yeah. a, just a, a great bop, you know? Yeah. And so this piece of music is, it's it's the long goodbye. It is this kind of crooner jam about, that seems kind of vague and sort of lyrically is about goodbye. nothing other than just like, long and goodbye. But like, he does it as, he arranges it as a marching song in a funeral parade in Mexico. By. It's sung by a male voice in a bar with like a lounge lizard. It's on the radio in a female singer. And Altman stitches them together so well. I mean, totally jumping back early into the opening when Marlo's hearing it in the radio of his car and he steps into the grocery store and it's a fucking like. It's music! Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so good. Um, I, we can also cut this, but I watched um, 
the 1955 310 to Yuma, which opens with a just a fucking banger that sounds a Dope. lot like the long goodbye. So all day today, I've just been singing to myself, "It's the long goodbye." Called the 310 to Yuma. <laughs> <laughs> tune in, tune uh, in to our Elmore Leonard series to hear Caleb sing that in full. Um, what is a movie that, uh, like, uh, sorry to interject, but what is a movie that you no, love no. that is hellishly old that, like, nobody else, like, really knows of anymore at this point because it's become, like, so obscure in culture? Oh. I th- 310 to Yuma is that for me just because it's been so overshadowed by that mm-hmm. terrible remake um, <gasps> which I think is what I think it's I think it's really bad oh and I fuck think off the, uh, the remake is great Caleb oh it's awful it co- totally kills the James ending James Mangle hits um, a fucking bullseye with that movie I will say it here I will fucking kill you <laughs> um, no I but I, I think the original is is much less violent but I think is uh, uh, much more insightful about human nature and honor and the fucking economics of the planes. Um, I don't know. I think that movie rules, and just no one has seen it. And if they, if I, if people hear me talk about how good Three Ten to Yuma is, they're like, "What the Christian <laughs> no, Bale one?" For real? That's what I thought um, of when you said that. <laughs> no, no, no. Kill the, crit- the original rules. God. You guys should watch it. It's so much fun. Caleb was throwing a video in the chat. What do we have? What are we? What That's are... just the three ten to Yuma song. Okay, I'm gonna listen to this in the background while I describe. Um, yeah, the closing whips. the closing scene of this movie. I think. Okay, this is a, this is a good jam. All right, so I watched this movie. Sorry, I watched this movie on uh, after taking an edible, and I didn't know that this movie was gonna open with this song, and I just fucking ascended. Drugs and movies are like uh, one of the great. One of the great. This will be. This will be. I think this is how physical media can make a comeback. Is I think a video rental store that is also a dispensary, and it will pair like movies and weed strains for you. Well, I think it's interesting how many movies are made under the influence, um, and how many how how often that isn't talked about in art, and why there is this like presupposed idea that if you're making art, you have to somewhat be under the influence to a certain extent. It's so interesting to see the identity, and even in this movie, especially, because um, Robert Altman wasn't a drunk, but Robert Altman loved to drink, and he had to stop because his heart was going to explode at a certain point, and he actually, I think he got a new heart um, in the early 2000s, and um, good for him, because he was drinking so much, and he gave up drinking for a while, but he was like also like someone in the same attic tendency was a huge gambler which is like also such like an interesting thing as an artist where it's like oh you care about your art but it's like you love to gamble that's what i always think is like interesting when it's like you do say you love this but there's also this other thing that holds a large presence over your life that could potentially maybe ruin this thing that you care about so much Speaking of things that may ruin the thing we care about so much, I I have prepared a yeah. game show for the conclusion of this episode. Is now an okay time to move into that, or do we have more thoughts about the movie we want to say? Do we want to give like maybe final thoughts on like this film as a whole? We're gonna circle okay. back to cool, final cool, thoughts. Cool, cool, sorry, cool, cool. sorry, I cool, should have cool, said cool. this to you. We play the game show and then we go to final thoughts. Okay, definitely. I'm down for the game show if Caleb is down. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So we've spent a lot of time talking about Elliot Gould in today's episode, and I wanted to create a game show that showcased his storied career. And while he is obviously the lead of The Long Goodbye, Elliot Gould is perhaps best known for supporting roles and his work in larger ensemble features. Zant and Caleb, I will go back and forth between the two of you, naming various movie stars, Mm. and you will have to tell me whether they have or have not worked with Elliot Gould. The name of this game show is... All that glitters is not Gould. Oh my god. <laughs> I love it. So it's amazing, it's immaculate, it's all it needs to be. Uh Zant, you're the guest, so we're gonna go with you first, okay? Sounds good. Brad Pitt. Has Brad Pitt worked with Elliot Gould? Yes. Correct. He is in Ocean's Eleven with him. Caleb, Angelina Jolie. Has Angelina Jolie worked with Elliot Gould? Uh, Angelina Jolie, uh, I don't think she's worked very much with ensemble casts, so I'm going to say no. Yes, you're correct, Caleb. Correct, Caleb. That is tied up at one point each. Zant, Al Pacino. Has Al Pacino worked with Elliot Gould? All right. Okay. Uh, it me. Uh, I want to say yes. You are correct. Al Pacino is in Ocean's 13, where he's the antagonist. Oh, I did not remember that, but yes, I'm so glad I said yes. <laughs> All right, the other side of the Heat matchup, Robert De Niro, Caleb. Has Robert De Niro worked with Elliot Gould? Oof. Robert De Niro has done a lot of very bad uh, ensemble work in the past 10 years, but I think sort of in the same time that Elliot Gould has taken a step back. So I'm going to say that their respective ensemble careers did not overlap and they have not been in a movie together. Correct. I could not find a movie that Robert Fuck De Niro you. and Elliot Gould did together. Fuck yeah. Uh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. That, listeners, that, that if I've made hard. a mistake... I would have said yes. I would have said yes. I'm going I'm to say right now it's a little easier to find movies that people have been in together than exhaustively proving that two decades-long <laughs> careers have never overlapped. So mm-hmm. if listeners have some deep cut, find us on Twitter at AdaptedBest um, and let us know. You could always do someone tricky like Rami Malek because you never know what film he popped in early on before he was starting to pop off. Like Rami Malek shows up, like, when he's in The Master, I'm like, yeah. what the hell is he doing It's here? like, why is he in The Master, and then why did he do a movie with Spike Lee and, like, a like a bunch of, like... I... Zant. Sorry, I, 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 Caleb is on East Coast time, so I want to be... Yeah, I, let's continue the game. He's got a working day. Zant, Liza Minnelli. Has Liza Minnelli appeared with Elliot Gould in a movie? I want to say yeah. Correct. They are both in The Muppets Take Manhattan. Hell yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Caleb, O.J. Simpson. Has O.J. Simpson been in a film with Elliot Gould? Um, these are two icons of the late 70s. For real? Uh, I'm going to O.J. Simpson had, I think people forget how many movies that he made. I'm going to say that, yes, they were in a movie together. That's correct. O.J. Simpson is one of the leads of Naked Gun 33 and a third, and Elliot Gould is a cameo. That's yes. right. All right, all right. I've seen that movie. Zant, Miranda Cosgrove, Miranda Cosgrove of iCarly fame. Has she done a film with Elliot Gould? So like film, not television or anything, right? Uh, I'm I I will say feature film. Okay. So that would include that would include TV movies. Okay, like a TV ish movie. Okay. Like to my knowledge, I don't think Elliot Gould guest starred as like. You know what? Her uncle. I'm gonna I'm gonna say yeah. 
Incorrect. I could not find a Miranda Crossgrove (laughs) Elliot Gould overlap. I was like, maybe there's like a Drake and Josh movie that Elliot Gould like appeared in. It would be like kind of like as I was putting this list together, it's kind of on brand for things he's done. Yeah. Uh, Caleb, Raven Simone. Has Raven Simone done a movie with Elliot Gould? See, I think this I think this is a this is a trick that you 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 baited me with with one Disney star who was not in an ensemble with Elliot Gould, and now this is the Disney star who was. Uh, but now I'm worried that this is a double bait. But I'm still gonna go for it, Caleb. I think you have used the phrase "Disney child star" and "bait" too much in the same <laughs> sentence. <laughs> uh, well, I'm still gonna say Raven Simone. Uh, was in a movie with uh, Elliot Gould. Correct. They were both in Kim Possible, A Stitch in Time. What? Uh, I'm just That's wild. I'm just f- fucking killing this, I gotta say. Caleb has taken the lead at four points. I've. Th- it's been a while since I've won one of these. I'm very excited. All right. Uh, this next round is going to be a couple of Husky boys. Zant. Hulk Hogan. Has Hulk Hogan been in a film with Elliot Gould? Damn. Because it's like... Maybe, but it's also like one with Hulk Hogan popular, and one was at like Gould, like in demand. And it's like that. Okay, that's why I love history of cinema, though, because you just understand like what was going on and what were the trends of the time. But I'm gonna say yeah. Correct. They were both in the film called The Little Hercules. I I found it on Letterboxd. I know almost <laughs> nothing about it. I think yeah. Gould plays Poseidon or something. Oh my uh, god. <laughs> Elliot Gould was like, at one point, give me work. <laughs> Whatever it is, give me that. Zant, you have tied it back up with Caleb. We now go over to Caleb. Robert Duvall. Has Robert Duvall done a movie with Elliot Gould? I feel like the answer They must have. Yeah, I feel like the answer They must have. Yeah. These, these yeah, are two kings of the late 70s. Yeah, they're both in yeah. MASH. I probably should have done this one. They're in MASH? Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. I believe Bob Duvall's Who's Duvall? in MASH. I thought Duvall... So, Duvall's in, Duvall's in Kubrick's, right? Or is that full of... Full Metal Alchemist, right? No, Duvall is in Full Metal Alchemist. Full Metal Jacket. Absolutely. Full Metal Jacket. I don't think Duvall. Yeah, he's in Full Metal Jacket. I don't. No, he's not. He's in Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. Sorry, I just got. Yeah. Yeah. So, is he? Dude, Duvall in Full Metal Alchemist. That'd be amazing. You just see just Duvall as he is, no character, just like. Yeah. Duvall's so great, though, and I. I don't know if you guys got a chance to read the Shelley Duvall article that just came out. I haven't, but I hear it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I want to hear her talk about The Shining and like Kubrick and their experience in acting and like getting out of art because that's so interesting. To me. I you know I will say this: the the article or the the profile is specifically not about that. It is about sort of post yeah post all post that fame. post all that. Yeah. Well, like so that cool. article will be about two months old by the time this episode comes out. Yeah. <laughs> you can find it. At your local library. Uh, <laughs> it's good. You should read it. Who went last? It was Caleb Lat. Okay. Zant. Annette Benning. Has Annette Benning been in a film with Elliot Gould? Okay. Damn. Because I'm like, I haven't seen enough Annette Benning stuff where I'm like, damn, what has Annette Benning even been in? Like, I think the most recent film I saw her in was like, what the fuck is that one film with Elle Fanning? Uh, 20th Century Women. The yeah, Great. Uh, it's so good. good. It's so good. But I'm trying to I'm trying to think of like what Annette Benning has even been in. Like the, the that I'm actually right. with. 
She so um, she is in the kids all right, right? I With Julianne Moore? Right. I yeah. Be, I could be totally wrong. Yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. So I don't know. Annette Bening is such a great actress whenever I do see her and stuff, but I'm gonna say she has worked with Ghoul. That's correct. They were both in the film Bugsy. Okay. <laughs> the Warren Beatty uh the Warren Beatty uh crime. I just crime bought topic. the Parallax View. Or whatever. Dude, whatever oh, that the film Parallax is called. View. I've never the seen Parallax it. View f- whatever that the Parallax movie is. View slaps. I think we're maybe doing an episode on that one down the road. Yeah. Um, I just bought it on the Criterion because they had a sale. Mm-hmm. Parallax View rules. Caleb, Marlon Brando. Oh. Damn. <sighs> um how many Brando Hub films have you both seen? I've only seen I've seen none. Not one, not even like The Godfather Whoa. or Oh, I just Apocalypse watched now? The Godfather this year. So that's the first Marlon Brando film I've seen. Uh I think I've I've seen the I've seen the hits. I've seen well, on the waterfront uh, stuff and like Uh-huh. The Tango, wild one uh, that's Tango in Paris or something. I have not seen Last Tango in Paris. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I've seen uh, The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. And have uh, you ever seen uh, Elliot Gould uh, alongside him, Caleb? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think this is a similar sort of... Uh, Elliot Gould's career was, was waxing as Brando's career was waning, yeah. and then when Brando had his resurgence, it was vice versa. So I'm going to say no, that they missed... Those two trains never connected. My findings were the same. I have not seen wow. Elliot Gould and, and Marlon Those Brando two seem the like they would connect, though. I feel like. Oh, they, I'm sure. I am sure they vied. I f- I'm sure they uh, consumed a tremendous amount of cocaine and had a great time <laughs> together. Well, you know what the funny okay. thing? The funny thing is, is like Brando came back in the last part of his career, and that is like so interesting to me when an actor has like that big, like full circle comeback, where sure. they're now all of a sudden getting work, but. On with the game. Uh, all right. Um, okay, we have two more questions, and then I do. I could do a little bonus round here if we really wanted to. Um, Zant, Ice Cube. Has Ice Cube ever done a movie with Elliot Gould? Yes. Correct. They were both in The Glass Shield, <laughs> directed by Charles Burnett. Yes. I was like, <laughs> as I heard the name Ice Cube, and I was like, he's got to do it. Like, they have half to collab at all this right. point. All right. Tied up at six points. Caleb, has Jared Leto done a movie with Elliot Gould? I I would lose considerable respect if Elliot Gould did a movie with Jared Leto, so I'm going to say no. That's correct. I could not find them having done a movie unless... Have I missed a question? I feel... I I think you missed one. I I think you missed one, and that's why we're tied. Yeah. um, Well, actually, Caleb is ahead because you went first, Zan. So you missed... um, I don't know if it was, I believe it was Hulk Hogan, maybe that. No, it wasn't Hulk Hogan, but I think it was the one before. Damn it. Yeah. I do have a bonus round. As is, as is tradition with these game shows, I try at the last possible second to <laughs> steal Caleb's win. So, Zant, if you can accurately guess Elliot Gould's um, uh, Zodiac, like his, astro- his astrological sign, I will give you the win over Caleb. Okay. Okay. What? It's a one in twelve chance. It's not that likely. <laughs> okay. Elliot Gould, just as a person. Seen this, just yeah. as just, you, yeah. you vibed on him as Philip Marlowe. You know he's attached to that character. He drove an Oldsmobile. What zodiac sign do you? Feels think like a has? Taurus. I regret to inform you, he is a Virgo. Damn it. Kind of close, Caleb. Kind of Caleb, close. you hang on. Zant, your co-host Mads fucking stormed my last game show and I think got every single question right and just, just kind of wiped the floor. 
and and they wanted she me set to set me on fire. They wanted me to make sure you knew that they had won and that you had lost. <laughs> now, so. <laughs> I'm so happy. <laughs> um, so glad they let me know that. Caleb, give us the talk. Okay, Zan Peralta. Uh, we've now discussed for two some hours uh, about uh, about Robert Altman's 1973 film. Uh, the long goodbye. Uh, so it is time for you to collect all of your rich and complicated thoughts and debase yourself by boiling it down to a single answer. Is this film a adaptation? Is it a bad adaptation? Does it make you feel a little bit sad adaptation or maybe a little steaming mad adaptation, any variation thereof? But what sort of adaptation? Yeah. Is this of Raymond Chandler's novel? I think adaptation. I think I don't know. Am I supposed to say more? Or am yeah, I yeah, di- yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Just your couple sentences on it. I think it feels like a movie that isn't trying to overreach and isn't trying to be more than it is, but is also so solidified in the era of it what of it taking taking place and then I don't know. It's just such a cool movie, too. It's like, I don't know, you can't replicate what it's trying to create. You either have to be it or you're not. And, like, I feel like that's what all And, like, that's what Altman, like, kind of does best, where in a lot of his work, it just feels like, yeah, got it. I don't need no more. I don't need no less, but this is it. And that's what Altman does best in the era he's working in. I would say that with The Player and uh, with Shortcuts, too. Holman just gets it, he wants it, and he films it. Uh, I can go next. I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't love the book The Long Goodbye, I'll be honest. I, I, I think, I appreciate what Chandler is trying to pull off with it, and it doesn't quite land with me. And I think that The Long Goodbye as a film is one of the, one of the rare adaptations that, rather than try to pare down the material it's given with to fit into a, a tight two-hour frame, I think this movie really beautifully fleshes out and details and really populates what Chandler is putting down in a book. It's a really nice mix of a very sparse kind of conversational prose with a director that loves to feature a lot of performances, a lot of improv- improvisation, like just just really likes to kind of zhuzh up any sort of scene that he's got going. And so I'm giving this one a fucking adaptation. Uh, this movie rules. It's a great one. I highly recommend everybody if you can find a way to watch it. Caleb. Um, yeah, I, it's interesting that you bring up the fact that this is not one of Chandler's best novels because uh, Lee Brackett, who wrote uh, the screenplay, agrees. And she um, thought that the, the novel was sort of rife with uh, with cliche and was sort of the a lesser work of kind of a depleted artist and from that lee brackett built a magnificent film an interrogation both of the hollywood that came before and the new cutthroat era uh of hollywood of the early 70s without coming across as backwards or reactionary in any way well also working brilliantly with a member of the New Guard uh, and showing a way to make 
great films about communities without resorting to pettiness or viciousness of any kind. This is a fucking magnificent movie. It is an utter masterpiece. And uh, though I have not read this novel, I think I am compelled to bring back a category that we anointed in, in our last miniseries. And I'm going to say uh, that this film is a best adapted screenplay. Hell yeah. Do you think this is Robert Altman's best film? Among them. I love, I love, I love Robert Altman. I, I love him. I love MASH. I think Nashville is, is fairly stunning. I like Gosford Park a lot. It's mm-hmm. late. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, no, it's no. late Altman, but I think it's very good. Um, but it, I mean, I, this is certainly, if it's not the best film that he made, it's among them. And that is no insult to any of the other films he made. No insult to is, any of the other films. So do you think like, to me, it's like shortcuts, the player, um, this film right now. So do you think it's better than the player? And do you think it's better than shortcuts? I haven't seen shortcuts. I do think it's better than the player. Okay. I like the player okay. a lot. Um, I agree. But, but yeah, no, I, I think this, this film is just, uh, is just a richer portrait of what Los Angeles and what Hollywood is yeah. than, than the portrait, which I think is a little bit, a little bit more bitter, bitter and a little bit more cynical, uh, and doesn't have, uh, it, it doesn't have the, the warmth and regard for what this town can be. Zant, thanks so much for joining us. Do you, I, folks should definitely check out uh, Under the Influence. It's one of my fucking favorite podcasts running right now. I wish you guys would do episodes more than once every month and a half, but I will yep. take them as soon as I can get them. <laughs> Zant, where else can folks find you? Uh, anywhere at Zant Peralta. On Twitter, on Instagram, whatever uh, platform you're searching on. Uh, SoundCloud. Yeah, any any uh, any of that, you'll find me. You'll find my short films, or you'll find my profile, and I'll follow you back more than likely. Unless I don't know you, then you should DM because like I'm not gonna just fall back some rando that doesn't have any visuals or whatever. <laughs> that's just that's just me on that. But yeah, thank you to Slow Your Roll for our theme song. Thank you to Zach Sisk for our artwork. Thank you to the listener for tuning in, and I'll just leave you with this. Goodbye. It's supposed to be a long goodbye. Caleb is fucking. Hey, it's alright with me.